Well, in many high schools and colleges and universities, the students all know what the passing grade is. The passing grade is at least 70%. You get 70% or higher, you pass. You get less than 70%, you fail. You go to the doctor, as do I, for checkups, and the doctor runs blood work, and there are certain tests and markers that the doctor is looking for in our blood, and there are certain ranges of acceptability for different ones of these markers, and if our blood shows that our markers are within a healthy range, we, we pass the physical. Or they put that collar around our upper arm, and they pump it up, and then they read our blood pressure, and if our blood pressure is within a safe and healthy range, we pass that test. The question becomes, uh, do people suffer for doing what's right? The answer clearly is yes. Uh, do Christians suffer for doing what's right? Again, the answer clearly is yes. And maybe some of you are here this morning. And if I had a testimony time, you would say, I am suffering in these ways for doing these things right or saying these right things or what have you. And so if that is the case, and it is, that we all suffer and Christians suffer from time to time for, for what's doing what's right, then does the scripture help us know what the passing grade is on the test of suffering? Does the Bible give us some indications as to what would be the grade that we ought to shoot for such that we would pass the tests, the trials that God sends our way? What would that passing grade in suffering look like? And what we're going to see in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 to 19 this morning, is that there are three things that would constitute a passing grade for us as we suffer for doing what is right. Number one, rejoicing. When we rejoice in our times of suffering for doing right, we pass the test. Second, glorifying God. When our heart is to glorify God, even though we are having a hard time because we're loyal to God, that is a passing grade for suffering. The third thing is to trust ourselves to God while we suffer for doing what's right. When we rejoice, glorify God, and trust ourselves to God in the midst of our suffering for doing what is right, we pass the test. We make a passing grade in that episode and season of our lives that we would call suffering. I want to unpack these three things from within the paragraph individually, but before I do, this paragraph not only identifies what the passing grade factors are when we suffer for doing what's right, but this same paragraph says how we can have these three things of rejoicing, glorifying God, and trusting ourselves to God. It says how that can happen, and it says why that can happen, all in this one paragraph. If you're here today suffering, and you know you're not suffering for doing wrong, but you're suffering for doing right, this paragraph is a great encouragement. And you can take great practical help from it. So on this whole concept of the passing grade of rejoicing when we suffer, look at verses 12 to 14 of 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. 
But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, watch it, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, watch it again, you may rejoice with exultation. He says in verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. This fiery ordeal that he referenced would have been well known to the original readership of 1 Peter. It was a fiery ordeal which had to do with the Roman emperor Nero. Nero had a grudge against all Christians after there was a large, large fire that destroyed most of the city of Rome in A.D. 64. And whether or not Nero himself was implicated in the cause of that fire, that is still a controversy to this day. But what Nero did as the emperor in his hatred for Christians, he pointed the finger of suspicion that had been on him and he pointed it squarely on the followers of Jesus. And he persecuted and murdered and killed many, many Christians to get the blame for the fire off of himself and onto followers of Christ. Both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter and most of the first readers of 1 Peter died as martyrs under Nero's persecution. Listen to what the non-Christian historian Tacitus summarized about this terrible time. Their death was made a matter of sport. They were covered in wild beast skins and torn to pieces by dogs or were fastened to crosses and set on fire in order to serve as torches by night. Nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle and gave an exhibition in his circus, mingling with the crowd in the guise of a charioteer or mounted on his chariot. Hence, there arose a feeling of pity because it was felt that they were being sacrificed not for the common good, but to gratify the savagery of one man. End of quote. Terrible, terrible stuff. Christians burned alive and counted as patio torches simply because they loved Jesus. They followed Jesus. And yet Paul wrote to these that were still alive when he gave his letter. He wrote to them, those believers, and said that they ought not to be surprised by such fiery ordeals because they were for their testing. I hope you do know the difference between a biblical testing and a biblical tempting. They're very different. If you hold your places in 1 Peter 4 and go with me to the first the New Testament book, rather, of James. James chapter one, verses two to four, says this. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so these testings, these trials, are from God. The same word here in James used for trials is the very same Greek word which was used in our passage in 1 Peter 4, verse 12, and translated testings. And so why would it be that God would send us Christians uh, testings and trials? 
Because according to verse three of James one, because it's the testings and precisely the trials that produce endurance in our faith. Implication being, if we do not have times of testing and trial, we will not have enduring faith. Tried and tested faith also produces endurance. And endurance has a perfect result that when we have enduring faith, we have the perfect result of a believer who is, according to James 1, verse 4, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I want you to think with me about perfect, that concept. It means all parts mature. I could bring a 10-year-old boy up here from junior church, and he would not be uh, perfectly mature, he would have all of his parts, but he would not be mature, he would not be yet perfect. Or I could bring a 30-year-old man to stand with me as an illustration, and he could be mature in all of his body parts, except if he lost a leg due to amputation, due to diabetes, he would not be complete or intact. God sends to us trials and tests so that we would be fashioned, formed, grown to be both perfect and complete. Mature in Jesus Christ in all aspects and lacking no aspect of resembling Jesus Christ at all. Perfect and complete. Perfect and complete happens for you when God tests you when God builds endurance into your faith. Still in the collateral reading in James 1, verses 13 to 15, let no one say when he is tempted, now we're switching gears to temptation, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust, Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Trials and testings are from God to improve us. Temptations are from Satan. They hook into the Velcro of our flesh and our lusts, and they are sent by Satan to destroy us. Satan would want to destroy our marriages. Satan would want to destroy our testimonies at work. Satan would want to destroy this local church assembly. Satan would like to destroy the Commonwealth of the Bahamas. And so he tempts all of us with a variety of temptations. And so we go back to 1 Peter 4, verses 12 to 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that you also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. And so we ought not to be surprised, brothers and sisters, when we are called and tested to suffer for standing with Christ at school, at work, in business, or anywhere else. We ought not to be surprised that we're called to be tested, that our faith would be proven to be enduring faith, 
We ought not to be surprised that we suffer for doing what's right because our Savior supremely suffered for doing supreme right. And so we should remember that these fiery ordeals, these trials, are not as a punishment from God, but as a purification from God in love. There is a beach in Maine, Scudic Point, Maine, where the beach is entirely made up of stones. Some stones are the size of tennis balls. Other stones are the size of watermelons. They're all stones, but none of them are jagged stones, as you can see. None of them are rough stones. They're all smoothed. They're all rounded. They've all been experiencing the heat and the abrasion and the erosion and all that was required to produce a beach in Maine full of stones that are smooth. God is producing a beach of smooth stones around this whole world of believers and followers of Jesus. And we're but a collection of some of those smooth stones that Jesus is putting together to make a beautiful beach. And even as those smooth rocks in our picture reflect the beauty of the sun as it sets, we are to reflect the beauty of the Son of God wherever we are. How we speak, how we think, what we do, we ought to be emblematic of his work in our lives. Rejoicing when he knocks off an edge of us. Rejoicing when he sands us, sending us perhaps devastating circumstances. Some of us have devastating circumstances this morning that are short-lived, we hope. Others of us have devastating circumstances that are long-lived. You've lived with this devastating circumstance for decades. And you don't know if it's ever going to end. You can rejoice. Because God is smoothing you into something precious and beautiful and unique and wonderful. When we are buffeted by the tests and the trials of life, something wonderful happens. Look at verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When we are able to understand that our tests from God are not punishments, that when the testings of God are for our good, when the testings of God are some things that we can even rejoice in, We understand, according to verse 14, that the Spirit of God, who always lives inside the blood-bought Christian, rests upon us in an even more profound way. When the Spirit of God, who indwells the true Christian, sees that Christian going through a time of testing and trial, and that Christian is rejoicing, then the fruit of the Spirit comes to the surface in an undeniable and unmissable way. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, these wonderful fruit of the Spirit are best shown 
as we are tested, as we are tried. Verses 15 and 16. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. It is interesting to see, I think, in verse 15 that certain things are held in sharp contrast to being a Christian. Murdering, stealing, evil doings. But right in that list is being a troublesome meddler. Well, that's, that's something we're a little easier on ourselves about, maybe. I mean, it's not that terrible to be a troublesome meddler, Lord. I mean, she was going to find out about it anyway. Well, if I didn't speak up for him, who was going to speak up for him? Probably the most common verse I have used from the book of Proverbs in 30 years of counseling God's people has been Proverbs 26, verse 17. Like one who takes a dog by the ears is one who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. Dogs don't like to be picked up by their ears. And what I picture the dog of this proverb is not one of your beautiful, shampooed, groomed, five-pound poodles that you could pick up so easily. I picture one of the pot cake dogs on the streets. Maybe weighs about 30 pounds. And you take a dog like that, you pick up a pot cake, 30-pound pot cake dog, and you pick that dog up by the ears and it's not happy. And because the dog weighs 30 pounds, you have to bring your elbows in to your chest for leverage if you want to hold that dog off the ground. And you get that dog closer and closer to your face by getting leverage with your elbows, and that dog is not pleased with you. When we pass by and meddle with strife that doesn't belong to us, we are picking up a dog by the ears. Don't do that. And so in these two verses that contrast between a Christian and behavior that a Christian ought not to ever have, we have 15, by no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, implication being you will suffer as a Christian, it's par for the course, it's not an anomaly, it's not weird, It happens, because we're not home yet. Heaven's our home, we're not home yet. People here don't always love Jesus. Notice? We're not home yet. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, uh, let him glorify God. Which brings me from the first passing test of suffering for doing right, which is rejoicing in it, the second passing test is glorifying God in it, to glorify God in it. And so we can and should glorify God when we suffer. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 3, 
11 and 12. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion, eating their own bread. That's another uh, New Testament equivalent of Proverbs 26, 17, don't meddle with other people's strife. One of the ways that you will bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ when you are called to be tested to be suffering is not to mind other people's business, but to turn your heart toward home. Many of you who know history know that Alexander the Great conquered the known world in a rapid fashion. He was extremely young as he was the general of a massive army, disciplined army, uh, fierce army, strategic army. They conquered the known world in no time flat. And someone found a deserter in Alexander the Great's army and brought the deserting soldier to justice before Alexander the Great himself. Alexander looked the deserter up and down and turned to the arresting soldier who brought him to Alexander the Great and said, ask him his name, which the soldier did. And the soldier responded, Alexander... And Alexander the Great said, go and change your behavior or change your name. There are some persons in the body of Christ where Jesus says, go and change your behavior or change your name. We will bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ, we will bear up well carrying his name best and often surprisingly best when we are suffering for doing the right thing. How to pass the test for suffering for doing right? Rejoice. Glorify God. And the third thing is to trust yourself to God. Verse 17 talks about uh, God's justice. Well, let me read 17 through 19, then we'll look at 17. For, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God, that's what we're talking about, suffering according to the will of God. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God, but wait, there are some television preachers and authors who would let you believe that it's never God's will for you to suffer as a Christian. But it says... Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God. It is God's will for some of us, if not all of us, for some of the time, if not all of the time, to suffer. That doesn't sell books. Therefore, Let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what 
is right. Keep right on doing what is right. Keep entrusting your soul to the faithful creator. Keep doing what's right, even though you connect the suffering you're experiencing for the doing of what's right. Just keep doing what's right. Just keep entrusting your soul to the faithful creator. Of course, when you talk about the judgment of God, as verses 17 to 19 do, we have to be very clear in our understanding that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And that is true for you if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. All of your sins have been paid for. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, verse 1. So what we're talking about, the judgment of God for the believer in Christ, is not a punitive judgment for hell. That is not a possibility for the blood-bought child of God. None of us are going to hell. Jesus paid it all. But there is a sense in which the New Testament teaches us that born-again Christians are uh, evaluated after the rapture of the church as something they call the bema, the great white throne, excuse me, the judgment seat of Christ. That is an evaluation of born-again Christians one by one to assess the rewardability or the unrewardability of our good deeds done after conversion. There's that evaluation for brothers and sisters in Christ like us. But there is a more serious not an evaluation, but a condemnation judgment, the great white throne judgment for the unbeliever, the person who does not obey the gospel of God, it says in verse 17. And it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and it begins with us first. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The reasoning of thought is, if the church of Jesus Christ is going to be evaluated by Jesus, and she will, then what kind of an evaluation and a sentencing will happen to those that are not in the church of Christ because they've disobeyed the gospel, not accepted Christ as Savior? Early in the service, Pastor Paul mentioned that if a person might be here today without Christ as Savior. First, we're glad you're here. If you'd like to talk about your soul and your destiny and salvation, I'd be happy to talk with you, most happy to talk with you. And then it says in verse 18, and if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, I mean, think about this, brothers and sisters, we are saved because it costs the Godhead a lot of difficulty. The father sent his beloved son from the palatial splendors and perfections of heaven to earth to go on a mission that involved the son being betrayed, misunderstood, belittled, deprived, tortured, executed, mocked. It took the Godhead great difficulty to win our salvation, that the Father would send the Son, that the Son would be willing to be sent. Verse 18, and if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and sinner? Well, other scriptures tell us what will become of the godless man and sinner is weeping and gnashing of teeth, a lake of fire, Hell is a real place. It's not a thought. It's not a state of mind. It's not a bad life on earth. 
And I shudder to think of anybody I would ever meet going there. It ought to make us cry when people reject Jesus. It ought to make us be persistent to keep sharing the gospel with them even when they do reject Jesus. How do we pass the test of suffering for doing right? We rejoice. We glorify God. And verse 19, therefore let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. I mean, I want you to think, I want you to think of your Christian life since you were saved. I want you to think of the happy, easy times that you've enjoyed with God's grace and blessing. And I want you to think about the hard and difficult times of your Christian life. Maybe some of you are in those hard and difficult times right now. I want you to think of the easy and uh, comforted, shall we say, times of your Christian experience and the very hard times of your Christian experience. And let me ask you this question. In which sort of time did you more entrust yourself to a faithful creator? Did you more entrust yourself to a faithful creator when the skies were sunny, the road was gently sloping downhill, or when the sun could not be seen? The path was rocky and steep, and there was nobody around? We can entrust ourselves to our creator better when we're suffering for what's doing what's right than when we're just floating along carefree in life. Because when we float along and it's carefree, we're tempted to give ourselves way too much credit. But when we're buffeted, Tested, our faith is coming to gain endurance. We're being made, in, being made perfect and complete. It's at those times of suffering for doing what's right that we're more prone to say, Oh God, help me. Work out the consequences of my obedience. Vindicate me, Lord. Charles Haddon Spurgeon is a name that many of us know and appreciate. What you may not realize, as I did not until I read this, that Mr. and Mrs. Spurgeon had a business. They sold eggs and sometimes the chickens that laid the eggs and milk and butter. But the rumor got around that the Spurgeons were greedy. But what the critics didn't realize was that the Spurgeons took the criticism silently and graciously because only after the death of Mrs. Spurgeon was it known that the entire profits from the business of the milk and the eggs and the chickens and the butter had been used to support two needy elderly widows whose husbands had spent their lives in serving the Lord. 
And because the Spurgeons were prepared to put up with the false accusations, the criticisms, the gossip, it was only after they both were in glory that the truth became known of what was done with the proceeds of those sales. If you are going to suffer for doing what's right, and if you are going to trust yourself to a faithful creator in so doing, you are going to have to have thick skin, broad shoulders, patience for God to vindicate you if you are to be vindicated. That's why when it's tough, when you're suffering for doing right, that's when rejoicing is most beautiful. That's when glorifying God is most beautiful. That's when entrusting yourself to God is the obvious thing that has to happen. So I don't know where you're at. And for those of you where I have some measure of knowing where you're at, I know I have a very small sense of where you're at compared to God knowing. But I know that there's a passing test score and God will give you what you need to pass the test of suffering for doing what's right. He'll give you the grace to rejoice in it. He'll give you the grace to glorify God in it. He'll give you the grace to entrust yourself to God in those times and seasons. As much as I love you as your pastor, God loves you more perfectly. He loves you perfectly. Lord, I thank you for these precious saints, some of whom, Lord, have come to this place hurting, discouraged, tired, misunderstood, subjects of gossip, Lord, I thank you that this wonderful paragraph helps us to interpret these things that happen to us in our lives and to come out from under them so we can be victors in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for those in our assembly who have modeled this rejoicing and modeled this glorifying and modeled this entrusting so beautifully over many years. Bless them, Lord. Give us ways to convey to them our appreciation for what they have taught us about suffering for doing right. Lord, for others of us, maybe we have just started to suffer on our job or at our school, in our neighborhood, because we've done right. We pray, Lord, that your grace that has kept these others through many years of suffering for this, that the same grace will see us through the new suffering, the new episodes of suffering that we find ourselves in. Lord Jesus, thank you that when we pray to you, you are a high priest acquainted with our sorrows, that you supremely suffered for doing supreme right, 
May we take great encouragement in that as we pray to you when we suffer for doing right. Bless this precious congregation. Send us forth into whatever this new week will be with a settled assurance that we are yours and with a desire to honor you, even and especially when our pathways are uphill and rocky and there are people cheering for us not to make it. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your people, your word, and your spirit. And we pray in Jesus, your name, amen.